Ian, we're Good here man. inside your Fibonacci house, having you on the podcast for the third time. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, you like borrowing. You like boring your uh, viewers, eh? <laughs> well, going back to the well of uh, repet- repetitiveness, or what? Sometimes I think the people who I talk to the first time say things more similarly than somebody who I speak to the second time, or even we'll see what happens on the third time. Uh, ideally, we've already discussed some of the more boring surface level things and we can uh, dive into maybe some hard-hitting questions. Sure, yeah. I think uh, the first... Do I get to hit, hit back just as hard Absolutely, as you please. All right. All right. <laughs> Harder, hopefully. Uh, first one, you started this company how many years ago? Uh, 2018, we incorporated in the Netherlands. The Canadian subsidiary about a year after that. Uh, the German subsidiary around that same time. So yeah. From the day we spent together today and the other times we've interacted, I've noticed a lot of times it's like weird things, excavators and pipes, and it's not always the technology that's like, it's usually not the technology that's the headache of the day. Uh, what's the, how is it different from what you anticipated, this startup and growing it and the challenges you have to face? Right. Okay, well, I mean, it's, it's not my first business. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been entrepreneuring since I was in high school, and not all the business I've started have been passed on or shut down, so mm-hmm. I actually have some other going concerns that, you know, can occupy uh, emergency moments, yeah. let's say. So you're talking about some of the plumbing and some of the water stuff that's going on around here. So uh, on this land where Twente is occupying, we also s- supply the water and the sewage treatment for about 20 homes in this region. And so, yeah, I lost a little bit of time this summer uh, trying to uh, stay on top of that a little bit. But, you know, you know we've got a big team now, so the, the, the focus on the 3D printing is still front and center for... In a more macro perspective, though, is, is there any way you can kind of paint a picture for... Somebody who's like, oh, I can, I'll start printing. Uh, how is it different from they anticipate? Um, it really depends on what background you come from. Honestly, I think everybody should start a 3D printing company. You know, I'm not a very good marketer. I'm not going to say that everybody should just buy our printers. Um, if our team was to quadruple in size, and every other 3D printing company on the planet was to quadruple in size, we're not even remotely come close to supplying the need that the world has for mm-hmm. 3D printers right now. So. From that perspective, you know, the competition's awesome. Um, but the thing to anticipate probably is that there's a very strange and weird pushback from the, the really well-entrenched conservative mindsets that exist in construction, yes, but even more so in sort of the jurisdictional mm-hmm. bodies such as municipalities yeah. or civil code or building code um, enforcers, let's say. They can be very smeagly about the way they behave with this new technology. Yeah, it's interesting because it's uh, limiting construction's innovation. It's the biggest industry in the world. Uh, and there's so much in place to keep things the way it is in terms of there's the permitting, but not only the permitting, the zoning. It's like, And then also a fire marshal might come in and shut a project down. It's There's so many angles from which, so many attack vectors. Um, a big part as this industry grows, develops, there's going to be people trying to stand in the way, I imagine, mm-hmm. as with any big change. Who I, who are those people who would stand in the way of 3D printed construction? Okay, they, 
it's really easy for us to be critical of these organizations. They have a very heady task, and that is to make sure that when buildings go up, they're safe, safe for people to stay in and beyond that. Because the majority of families, their number one investment, their biggest asset they'll ever accumulate mm-hmm. is not even a full ownership necessarily in their home, but like a partial ownership in their home through their mortgage strategies or what have you. And it's really hard on families when they go to sell a house and find out that uh, you know the people who built it cut some corners mm-hmm. and there's a bunch of mold or there's a, a bunch of non-compliant issues. So these people who are enforcing on the building code, they have a real task ahead of them but the thing is, is there's like this uh, uh, concept of just applying the rule for the sake of having the rule without actually understanding what's behind mm-hmm. that rule so uh, to give a perfect example like this beautiful home we're sitting in here right now because we had already a commercial building uh, permit application open like we're net zero ready on this entire building with exception to the doors because the doors are these cheap retail doors that we're allowed to use uh, because in the olden days, when there was a fire in a building, people would rush to the door and the crowd pushing on the, the, the doors would prevent them from being able to open into the building. So it's like an anti-stampeding mm-hmm. uh, uh, rule. Just in case there's code. a stampede in here. It's like, how can you have a stampede in a tiny home? Right? And we had these plans for these beautiful uh, patio doors, sliding doors that would have had much better energy efficiency. Um, that's a perfect example of what you were talking about like the these rules that just people are like checking these boxes and they don't understand why they're checking them and exactly uh, it's tricky not everybody can make critical thinking on the fly uh, they might not even be allowed to anymore let's see I think that we're living in this era now where culpability and the insurance companies and the the notion of you know an individual decision maker being held accountable for something that could be uh, extremely detrimental to them in the future makes it so nobody is using common sense. They're just applying the rule black and white. I wonder if you could raise enough money and have your own insurance fund to insure your prints. I don't know. Yeah, that's an interesting concept. I think that, you know, what we don't want to work outside the building code. Mm-hmm. We recognize the value in it. We want yeah. our buildings to be something that our clients can resell in the future. So we totally agree to adhering to the code. The question is whether or not the code can change quickly enough for some of the advancements we're making. And I'm really proud to be part of the organization with uh, ASTM, uh, which is doing ISO standardization. Um, Stefan Mansour, who you've interviewed in the past, he's been spearheading this great campaign. Uh, they have their mornings at this atrocious. They have their meetings at this atrocious hour in the morning, so it's pretty easy to sleep through them. But they've got uh, a pretty decent team putting together some concepts that will basically drive the building code to catch up to the technology. ASTM section five two nine zero zero. They're developing regulations. Uh, from my conversation with Stefan, from what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, to be more of a guide and less of a restrictive. Uh, limiting kind of thing. Yeah, so the language that we're starting with in that document is to try to keep things from the perspective of understanding that there's a massive amount of evolution that's going to go into this mm, product, which is so true. Process over the next few years that they did not want to uh, ram in some arbitrary rule that's going to be like a ghost in the system for decades to come because a few of us with a little bit of experience said, oh, by the way, we should you know make this a rigid component of doing for example, the qualification of your materials. When it may very well be that the material handling is gonna change so much in the next five years that those 
uh, prerequisite rules that we might write now based on today's knowledge will be nothing but a burden to the future people using this, uh, uh, trying to use this code to, to develop their own structures. Yeah, and that's almost a guarantee, right? That the materials will change, parts of the systems will change and develop. Mm -hmm. Well, the materials have to change. Everybody agrees that you know these companies are doing phenomenal work, mm -hmm. but there's real issues in consistency. Uh, there's real issues in uh, how the material performs in different environmental conditions. You know, we've really taken on the task of having pumps and, and nozzle systems that allow for very on-the-fly adjustments to mm -hmm. these variations that we see. Uh, but we've had projects that pretty much had to be cancelled because the material provider couldn't uh, guarantee a spec on the aggregate, for example, that was going to be in the material that made it so the project basically had to stop or sideline or they had to come up with new strategies because of the, uh, the inconsistency that we were seeing in what was provided to us. Yeah, Jim had mentioned you inverted your printer since the last time I was here. Uh, using your ninth um, axis. I don't think so. I think then you when you're here last time, you look your footage. Oh, it was we, inverted. We were printing then upside down as well too. I was gonna ask. It has that ninth axis, so you anticipated from the start inverting it at some point potentially. Oh yeah, it was always. I mean, we kind of had this romantic notion that somehow that we'd be able to have simultaneous ninth axis uh, rotation on that. Uh, we just don't have a single print that's ever presented the need for that. Mm -hmm. What and the what, programming language for that, with those SEW drives being driven by the ABB uh, control system, it's such a heady task that the 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 energy to get that to work uh, is not it's just not worth the effort. But, but indexing is very very easy. So you you stop the print, you do a controlled rotation, and then you start printing. The circumstance where you might hypothetically invert mid-print might be uh, if you wanted to print like on an angle above you or something? Well, if you want to be printing above the printer's reach, then definitely mm -hmm. you start with the printer in the upright position, or the robot in the upright position, but that dramatically reduces your overall width of your footprint because now the beam that it's traveling on is, in, is its own obstruction. So you could conceivably start printing in the upright position, but then when you want to get wider that you would swing down. But like as I said, we're going to do that as an index strategy for the time being. Uh, simultaneous movement on that ninth axis is it would it's just a waste of energy to try to make it work. Um, however, it does lend to our you know our Leonardo two system, which mm -hmm. is instead of the ninth axis being a rotational axis, it's a flying gantry style. So you can imagine, you know, like if you've seen our Quebecinator and our Berlin printers, mm -hmm. the their standard you know three axis printer like everybody else has with with rails on the ground. Now imagine a six-axis robot hanging from that uh, top um, Z position. Yeah, you get the best of both worlds. Yeah, definitely. But it's, again, it's very expensive machinery. The application case has to justify it. So do you, you anticipate know? the Berlin outselling the Telecom eventually, or is the Telecom probably the high-volume product? You know, it's funny. I think that the Berlin should be outselling the Telecom. The thing is, is right now on the open market, there are... 50 or 60 other companies who produce Berlin-like mm -hmm. machines. Uh, we're the only company in the world making a Telecom-type machine, so I think that's why the majority of our sales have been Telecoms right now. Uh, it's an excellent machine, but its application cases are very limited. Um, we do have this really cool uh, project where we're doing one Telecom setup homes. Um, I should actually go and grab you the, the model. The uh, Telecom machine is, um, what's really cool about it is it's very mobile and it's very versatile. So a lot of the stuff you saw printed around here that was printed in sight, um, the telecom shows up, print, and we can move it at the end of the day. We Last time 
what's the pricing on the telecom these days? I know it's probably changing depending on yeah, the supply it, chains and stuff. It really depends because there are, you know, I guess different configurations. Um, our preference is to use the 6650S robot, which can reach down. Mm -hmm. um, the majority of our sales have been the 6600, uh, sorry, 6700, pardon me. And those are coming in at around 315,000 euros. When you say reach down below grade? It's just a style of robot. So, you know, the, the ABB platform has got quite a few different mm -hmm. um, reaching capacities and payload capacities. And the, the telecom is best served when it's sitting nice and high and it's reaching down, so then you can reach up. And so, you know, doing three and a half, four meter prints is not a big challenge. I noticed your nozzle head used to be straight pipe, now it has, I don't know if you would call it an elbow joint or it's like a double elbow joint. Oh, we have a variety of nozzles for different reasons, different application cases. Mm -hmm. So the straight, what we call the musket, it's got a little bit of, a, of an opening to it. That will be for, um, you know, objects where you're gonna build two and a half D style, you're not necessarily gonna be reaching too close to things. Uh, we put the curve in when say we need to get up really close to another print. Mm -hmm. So if you look at some of the footage of the, the fl uh, uh, flower beds we did over next to the glass house there, uh, in order to, to be able to reach really close to a previously printed wall, you've got that. And then of course we've got um, other application cases where we might wanna have the nozzle have different shapes for, for the different type of bead qualities we wanted to go for. Mm -hmm. How do you decide the layer height? Uh, that's in the programming side of it. The guys will try to, de to determine how do we make this into an eight-hour workday. How do we uh, build quickly but not have too much, um, you know, uh, potential for disruption in the, in the actual print itself. Uh, the smaller the bead thickness is, the better back pressure you get on your hose. The more consistent your bead is. Uh, but of course, your build rate is slower, and you have more joints, and you have the chance for um, you know it's like anything the more of anything the higher percentage of chance that you're gonna have a failure so if you're going to have a failed print in if you're gonna have a, a clog in a kilometer or a kilometer half of bead the idea is that like the telecom as a mobile printer can very quickly and rapidly deploy houses and the the notion of the one-day house is something that a lot of 3d printing companies have been you know putting out there as being this realistic thing that can happen. And it's true, it absolutely can happen, but there's often a lot of steps that are being left out. And we, we thought that if we really wanted to have an impact on the affordable housing industry, and if we wanted to have an impact on, like there's a refugee crisis going on obviously all over Europe right now. Uh, we've had some huge forest fires and floods here in British Columbia. So we get lots of requests uh, to help with affordable housing and to do it quickly. And so we came up with this concept of basically um, doing the printed elements in one day, but that includes the setup of the printer and the teardown of the printer. You say one day house, but I want to clarify, there's a caveat. You probably, many people have seen house printed in 12 hours, house printed in 24 hours. Some of those same houses that I've seen those claims on, I have videos of their progress over six months where they have six inches done and then I come back in three months, they have a few feet. And they're like 12 hour prints, like, okay, what's going on here? And they're not liars. They're talking about the print time of when they were extruding material. Mm -hmm. And so if you consider the caveat and you listen really closely, they're being honest, but it's uh, very different from a house built in a day, like you're describing. Right. And so, and just to be clear, we're only planning on doing the extruded concrete in a day. All the other elements are going to be up to the other contract. But all the printing in one day, yeah, so not over six months. 
So what we did is we designed this house, and basically this is just the first of many pods that we're going mm -hmm. to do. Um, the Keiko is a 55 square meter house, or just over 570 square feet. Um, but what makes it unique is that you pull the tilicum in. You can imagine the tilicum pulls in, and we'll just show it upside down. And this actually shows the, the, the tool path everywhere that it does. So you've got your inside wall, your outside wall, you've got your four columns that will actually support your beams. Then you've also got your shear walls that will also be filled with concrete and rebar, so that's to deal with your racking issues. Um, and then everything else is going to be you know, conventional contracting. So the roof structure, the beams themselves will be cross-laminate timber. Um, but what's unique is you've got this huge opening here, mm -hmm. and then that ends up being a curtain wall, or glazing as some people call it. And then the printer can just pull out, it can park next door, and it can start printing the next one. Sure. Start printing the next one. And so this is kind of like the basic concept of really rapidly deploy housing using our mobile printer. And our mobile printer, you can just pull it with a one-ton truck. There's no special transport requirements. You don't need a crane or anything to set it up. We really can extrude the, the, the skeleton of a house easily in a day. And you could adjust the thickness between the walls to change the R value, whatever. Well, this is already a 30 centimeter gap we're doing here. Mm -hmm. um, so this is gonna be pretty close to net zero ready. Depending on what they spec for their windows, and of course what the roof structure is going to be, uh, but your windows, doors, and everything, if they are in that same energy class, uh, you know, solar panels on top of that with a geothermal pump or something like that, and this thing may not consume any external energy at all, conceivably. So that was the idea behind this design. And this is just the, the beginning of many. You know, we're going to have a catalog. You're going to be able to go onto our website and, you know, basically order a house and, um, instead of it being just a philosophical thing, you know, we'll say, yeah, we've got, you know, Citizen Robotics, they've got a telecom, they can come do it for you, or, you know, we've got other people in the United States that we are receiving printers this year, people receiving printers in Japan, they can take that drawing set, go and get their building permit, and then when they're ready, we can show up and we can print it. So I'd love to stop by a Citizen Robotics facility if they'd be willing to uh let me do a video with them. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, sure. Tom's a really nice guy. They got an awesome team there. So. Last time I asked, he kind of was not ready yet or something. Yeah. Well, are they, uh, there's one thing that everybody really has to understand about this. is You don't go and buy a brand new um, piece of equipment without having any clue mm -hmm. how it works. And so when we sell machinery, we sell them first on the concept of being ready to learn about the complexities around 3D printing. This is not just uh, pulling out an app and pushing play. There is a, a massive amount of learning that needs to be done. So the, the, the idea that you know you have uh, people not ready to see you, Jared, is because they want to make sure that they got things uh, tied Something up. I've always really appreciated about the way you run your business is that you don't try to influence the content I'm making at all. And like when stuff goes bad, you're not trying to hide flaws and every company, you have stuff your company's working on that's under development that you'll release in the future. Mm. But it's other companies, a print will go wrong or they'll run into a problem and they'll be like, please turn the camera off. You've never done anything like that. Mm. Uh, and so it's a level of authenticity that I think the other companies could benefit from having too if they were willing to show people uh, the getting started process and learning I'm in a new region now. How do I dial in my material to function well in this region? It's like people yeah. only want to go and show people when they have it dialed in, it's all ready to go. Um, and even then, it's not dialed in because it's a technology, right? It's always sure. under development and the 
But, I mean, okay, there is definitely a culture of people trying to hide things. Uh, but if you went onto our website when we first found it, you would have saw a statement on there that says that, you know, uh, you see furthest when you're sitting on the shoulders of giants. Mm -hmm. And Twenta could not have possibly been where it is had, you know, Henrik from Cobalt not invited us to come and see what he was doing. And, and um, Volker from Vertigo wasn't a huge influence on helping us to decide, you know, what, what uh, track we should be going down. You know, these, uh, like, look at how much uh, Baumet has had an influence on the way we do our motion control. We were talking about you and Jim started off building a gantry system. Uh, at what point did you realize we got to put a robotic arm on this thing? Oh, okay. But Jim and I, when we built that first gantry system, that was for cutting molds for making skateboards. Mm -hmm. it was CNC. Like ages ago. Yes, ages ago. Ages ago. So it's a really well-known technology that's been around for a long time. I think it's funny. So Nikita from Apuscore has been, I'd say, arguably trolling the industry lately by putting how to make gantry system plans on uh, yeah. his LinkedIn and Facebook page, which I think is funny. It's pretty tongue-in-cheek. I hope he's not bitter with the people who are, you know, competing in the space, but um, it's true. Like, it's just what anybody can jump into this if they want to. Uh, the thing that we're trying to do is, is to take that initial step that everyone's leaping into and go through all of the headaches and try to come up with programming choices, nozzle choices, pump and water and mix uh, choices, and add that technology to the way we put our systems together so that when people buy a machine from us, they're already sitting on the, our shoulders, mm -hmm. if you want to use that expression again, and the five years, four years of mistakes we've made, and they don't have to make them now, at least not as many of them. Um, you, you walk around the site, you can see we're trying to print the hardest, craziest stuff that anyone's ever printed before, not because it's necessarily the right application case, but if if somebody's not pushing this technology to its limits, uh, nobody would know what the limits are. Yeah, and this house is a great example of that, where other people have conformed to existing construction methods. You really did experiment with something new that hasn't been done, and it's like, I've been saying it's the 3D printed house for printers of houses, because it's something that anybody who prints a house, I think, will appreciate, uh, rather than trying to make it look like something people have seen before you made something new. Yeah. I, obviously, you know, we really gave ourselves a challenge with this one. We wanted to make it difficult for ourselves because that's kind of the nature of, of making something, you know, grow or, or expand technically. Um, we do get an enormous amount of, we like to call them tire kickers because, mm -hmm. you know, we get hundreds of requests a week. We get sent dozens of drawings a week about, uh, can you please cost out printing this house in... And then they sent it to us, and it's like a square rectangular building with a conventional triangular truss. And it's, it's the houses they've all seen many times before. It's the ones that have got architectural drawings for. The thing that's really strange about that notion, like, and, and I give this, uh, I'm probably starting to sound like a broken record on this one, but you know, if you call up John Deere or Caterpillar, who sell excavators, mm -hmm. and you say, okay, I'm looking at your five-ton machine, how much is it going to cost me to dig a hole that's 200 meters wide, one meter deep? It's about the amount of data. There's not enough data points yet. But that's never anything anyone would ever ask those guys. It's, they will say, True. our excavator's got a lifting capacity of this. We can put it on a truck of this size. This is how much it costs. People call up 3D printer makers and say, I would like you to tell me how much it's going to cost to make this house in this jurisdiction yeah. with this material uh, and you know nothing about what they're building. You pay for an excavator on a day rate, so it's a, quite different. The material is an expensive part of the process, so 
there's a much bigger variable cost than a, a piece of equipment like most of the... Okay, but Jared, I don't sell material. We don't sell materials. And, uh, you know, John Deere and Caterpillar, they don't sell holes. Yeah, I mean, the point is the customers are asking questions that haven't been answered yet because it hasn't been tried yet in their region. So right. there's no yeah, way exactly. to give a good estimate. Exactly. I run into the and same problem. It shouldn't be on us to know what local labor is in... Bangladesh or in Brazil. And even if it was, how could you possibly? I mean, there's no uh, there's no construction estimator that gets within 10% regularly. I, I mean, but we do it all the time. Every week, we try our best to look at someone's drawings, try to do the volumetric calculations of how much concrete it's going to take to print that building, give a basic estimate. We've got a cost calculator. We send it to them. Say, okay, you put in your own cost of windows, your own cost of flooring, plumbing, all this stuff, and maybe you'll kind of have an idea how much it's going to cost. And then they say, what? We thought this was (laughs) $4,000. Yeah, they do. But the reality is is that there's a very small people in the construction world that would be naive enough to believe that that's a real number. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the roof costs four thousand dollars, the windows cost four thousand dollars, the slab costs ten thousand dollars. Yeah. How are you building a house for four thousand dollars? Yeah. What land? Yeah. But there might have been truth. So all the concrete in this building costs six thousand dollars. And if we were to even just use like a keystoning practice, we would maybe build it to a job at twelve thousand. Are you able to disclose the total cost yeah. of this? Yeah, so all in we figure the house came out. And this is because we made estimations on our own labor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it costs about hundred and twenty thousand dollars Canadian or roughly a hundred thousand dollars US. And when you look at that number, we think we probably could knock 20% of it on our next version of this because we did so many things here. We had no idea what we were getting Mm -hmm. ourselves into when we got started. You have to understand Twenta first is an automation company, is a machine building company. Uh, You know, there's some construction savvy in the company from guys who've had a little bit of experience working in that field, but nobody ever ran a construction company. Nobody ever built houses from start to finish uh, prior to us getting involved in this. And so some of the decisions we made were maybe made on the fly. We're not necessarily in, in anticipation of some of the complications we would have had around working with the, the printed concrete. I've consistently seen companies save between 15 and 30% from their first house to their second house only on auxiliary costs, not the... Uh, sometimes the second house is significantly larger, taller, yeah. whatever it is, but they learn so much from house one to house two. Yeah. So this house here, this Keiko, is going to be about double the square footage of this one and should come in at an overall cost of about the same. Mm-hmm. So that's almost a 50% cost reduction. Yeah. And the, the reason is because, you know, we don't have any craning on this one, but everything we learned about the, you know, the preparation, site preparation, you know, is considered. Um, there's a, an enormous amount of new knowledge in this space that hasn't been acquired by any of the companies yet. And we're in that space right now where we're trying to experiment and push the boundaries so that that new knowledge can be there and shared. And guys like you coming to ask the questions that will make it so people understand what they're getting into. What good. kind of catalysts would help you expand and scale faster? How could you grow the fastest right now? Uh, it, we're in a funny space right now because we are living from sale to sale. You know, we are an operational company first. We have not gone out to the open market for large rounds of funding. Uh, I think arguably we're foolish not to. At some point, we definitely need to be operating in, in the same space. You know, those guys at Icon have done a phenomenal job of getting investors excited in mighty buildings. Um, even those guys at Diamond Age who never really actually made anything as far as I can tell have managed to get investors excited about the, some of the stuff they want to work on and it's 
it would behoove us to not you know capitalize now when there's a excitement around this but the thing is, is um, I've been running operations and companies for many, many years. To me, the most important thing is to run a profitable business, mm -hmm. to develop uh, technology with an R&D strategy that is uh, the least amount of money to go in to create a product that can be scaled quickly. Um, but you know, we have awesome um, investment strategies in that we are open up subsidiaries. So we've got the Dubai subsidiary. Uh, hopefully within two months, our Indonesian subsidiary will be open, which will actually be operating both in Jakarta and on Bali. And the, um, the, the relationships we have with the investors we have so far are all friends and family or else associated businesses. So either suppliers or customers who like what we're doing and they want mm -hmm. to get in. And so we've sort of allowed them in at that level. Um, but it would definitely be nice to have the, the war chest. As so let's say, going. skip a couple steps. You raise, I guess the ideal amount would be somewhere between 10 and 100 million. What would the use be like where would you go after that um okay so the business models i build don't start with a number first and then decide what i would do with it i've actually built a very um flushed out operational plan for our global operations that calls for somewhere between 40 and 50 million worth of investment that that's to reach operational profit within a, a desired time frame mm -hmm. that is under the kind of conventional business standards there is no, um, I guess, uh, speculation or, or assumed future valuation in that strategy, which is not the thing that gets the, ex the investors excited. They would rather see, okay, we're going to put $100 million in, when do we get our 5x? And you know that's something that you have to start making up numbers, and you have to start pretending you know the future. 10% cash flow would be pretty good. Well, there's a, there's a really, cash flow is a humongous thing because what people don't seem to ever recognize is that your supply chain cash flow uh, is hugely impacted by the types of terms you can negotiate with the people who are providing your goods. And even if you do get favorable um, payment terms on some of your supplies, there's also the notion that your collections is also going to be something you can do in, in a meaningful time frame. So when I build my models, I'm not just looking at what our sales are going to be and what our, our cost of goods sold. Well, I've got a way that I can, I can change it in my planning. So if you are imagining that you're going to do X number of sales, the, the percentage of the collection of those sales in the first 30 days may only be 30 to 50%. Mm -hmm. If that's not in your cash flow modeling, you can uh, easily be in a great business, a profitable business, but yet you still don't have the liquidity to keep things going. Um, you know, we love working with ABB, KUKA. Uh, we haven't tried any other robot companies yet. You know, it might be that we're working with some other robot companies, but they almost all demand a fairly large amount of money up front. Um, and then they can turn around and take 24, 26 weeks to deliver the goods. And so how do you justify with your client that, you know, they're going to have to give you a deposit so you can give your robot supplier a deposit and then everybody sits around and waits or everybody sits around and pays interest on that. So that game is something that's not mature in this industry yet. And we have to get to the point where, you know, we've got long-term supply agreements with our um, component suppliers and that we are able to manage the collections on our end so that our sales are actually, you know, uh, arriving, the, the revenue are arriving in time. A war chest to really secure those long-term contracts. Yeah, you can. That, that is a strategy to just sit on a large amount of cash. But cash that's not earning for your investors is also something that's not very good either. So you kind of want to make sure that you only borrow the exact amount you need. Mm -hmm. And so 
the, the business model that I think that this space th that we want to operate in right now for us to, to get to the expansion we're looking at is somewhere between 40 and 60 million mm -hmm. um, in euros. I tend to work mostly in euros when I'm discussing these things. And what that does is that allows all of our subsidiaries to get a little bit of a ramp up in their R&D equipment and then also be able to have their sales and their technical team available for their regional support. I think that's kind of the main thing. But I mean, that's just a, that's a very abstract number that is, um, you know, something that you can uh, pick holes in if you're like... Would that number investor. give you like 24-7 support? For your clients, we already have twenty four seven support. The sun doesn't set on Twenta right now. You know we've got operations in Dubai, and we've got operations in Europe. We've got operations in North America. And like I said, we're within a couple months away of having um, a permanent operation in uh, Indonesia. Yeah, I'd say twenty four seven support is huge because there are companies who say we will not take a call after two p.m. EST. Mm -hmm. So if you're on a construction site. Especially with the time restrictions, the sometimes the temperature of printing, you want specific parameters. So if you're waiting for the afternoon to get a nice print going or something, uh, and the country that you're trying to communicate with won't respond, uh, that's money down the drain. Yeah, well, it's not just money down the drain. It's frustration for your client. And you know, the most sales we've achieved so far has not been because of our own initial sales. It's because of the people that we've had so great contracts with telling their colleagues and friends or, or associated businesses, you know, working with Twine has been a real pleasure. Those guys are there for us and then that leads to more sales. And that really comes from that, that service point that you're talking about. The team behind the printer is such an important part of the, the process because it's a evolution. Uh, and I always try to look more at the work the team's doing to make stuff better because that's, I think, the best teller of like, 20 years from now, who's dominating the 3D printed construction industry. Yep. It's like your best guess is whoever's innovating, whoever's changing stuff. And So we call them subsidiaries on paper, but in reality, all of these individual locations we have, they're all R&D facilities. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not that they're only doing R&D there. They're definitely all doing sales support and they're building machines and selling machines and running prints. You know, we do do offer the service of printing as a, as a, a billable that we do. Mm -hmm. uh, the engineering around designing prints, this is all in our wheelhouse. Um, but the notion that they're all our research and development facilities means that there's something new going on in all those locations. And then that information basically trickles up to you know the engineers in the Netherlands and then gets disseminated back out to the rest of the teams uh, elsewhere in mm -hmm. the world. So. And that'll continue. I mean, every, anybody that buys a printer is probably the first in their at least state or town. Nobody, yeah. their neighbors are going to say, "What? What's? What do you have going on here?" And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, for example, like they, we're doing a, uh, we're printing barracks for the U.S. Air Force in Dubai, awesome. and the thing that they came at us was, we need to see the rebar in the ground first because they got a complex mm -hmm. rebar structure. So we have to have to print around the rebar. You built the longest TCB extension in the world. Okay, so Tool Center Point is the, the, the translation spot that your robot tells all of its motion to be based upon. Mm -hmm. And we think we broke the record for the longest TCP of any robot uh, with this one that we did in Dubai for this U.S. Air Force um, barracks project. What was the length? I think it's three and a half meters um, onto a, a, a three meter arm. So it's like a six and a half meter TCP. Uh, I'll give you some pictures of it. You know, you get a kick out of it. You, and, uh, Comment below if you could top that. Yeah, or if it's been beat by somebody else, we'd like to know. You, you don't really know. But 
definitely what we're doing with robots is we're pushing them to uh, levels that the robot, uh, the manufacturers of robots have never imagined, mm -hmm. right? They're, they're used to robots being used in discrete manufacturing, whereas we're sending thousands and thousands of lines of code. I think that same code. principle applies to the printers you're building. Like people will use them in ways you never imagined. I hope Your so. Customers I and... hope so. We don't actually find ourselves to be incredibly creative. We think that we are inspired by a lot of, of the things we've already seen out there and we're just trying to make improvements on it. When they're really, really cool, like architect minds or, or uh, builders or crafters that are out there get their hands on these things, then you're going to start seeing some amazing stuff. Mm -hmm. It takes all kinds of like mistakes and falls and uh, accidents to really figure out uh, all the cool design efficiencies. And has there ever been a unexpected improvement that came from somewhere uh, that wasn't linear? Um, okay, so we've got a very we've got a very diverse engineering team. So our head of research development is Tim, who you've met. Uh, he's a very pragmatic Bavarian in Germany. And he has this uh, he has this concept of you know plan first, make sure you get the result that you thought you were going to get, and if you didn't get that result, do an analysis of why you didn't get that result. And he's a really good coach for the rest of us who are much more prone to hey, what if we try this, what if we try that, and we might burn through some material or break a few things. Um, but the yin and the yang of the creative style that we have is actually like this full circle of, um, of product evolution at the print level and also at the machine level. You know, Both those things are, are evolving because of that, that approach. Uh, we've got these two young engineers from the Netherlands who are contributing hugely in being able to focus, like drilling down on very specific articulation issues we're having in some of the stuff we've been working on so uh, you know when you got a small team and 100 projects you got one one hundredth of their time in each project mm -hmm. and uh, when you you know have these uh, younger guys working on just very specific things then they can come up with some very fast um, advancement so It'd it's, be cool it's really to do a, bit, a bit of a mix of all that that we got going on right now maybe a competition one day if you have a in the extra day of printing, like have students compete to create some design or something, just yeah. explore the different possibilities. Well, we actually already did that here. So um, it's not online anymore, but we had um, uh, a site where you could actually go in and you could make vases and cool. flower pots and different types of things, and you could use the the parametric tools that were on the website. I think that's too limited. You have to do one that's like open submission and people yeah. submit stuff that is terrible, can't be printed, requires tons well, of sorting through. it was used for them as an inspiration, mm -hmm. and so then they went back to their own uh, CAD software, uh, and this is through uh, the Selkirk College cool. uh, stack program, and then we chose one or two of the designs that we thought were the best. They brought the whole school here, we had like all 30 of them lined up in the shop there, and we, we printed off the, the two winners that we thought. That's awesome. And, yeah, Some of those kids will probably be the future of the 3D printed construction. Yeah, we hope so, we hope so. We took on one intern out of that group, right away and then you know obviously uh, um, when there's room for more guys out here we'll be picking up from that program for sure people need hands-on exposure like you can watch a million YouTube videos but there's something different the learning that you get when you're doing something and like uh, it's challenging so many people see a 3d printed house they think it's an app you just press go but there is uh, and it's not every company has a manual effort to make the print happen whether they're manually designing the project or once they get on site manually dialing in the mixture, like, uh, what's the app that you just press play? 
Um, there isn't one. That doesn't exist. I think what exists is the uh, the next generation who's ready for an app like that to exist. And so they're going to do the hard work to get to the point where this um, this easy automation is going to be much more readily available to people who want it. I believe it's possible that it could be an app, whether it's in my lifetime or... Well, you, you sat with Cameron, for example. Fresh out of school, has got some new ideas. Uh, Yost, uh, he's also here. And, you know, the world that they grew up in, because, you know, they're in their early 20s, the things that we took for granted, um, for them, is just a standard, you know. And, wait a second, I got that wrong. The things that they take for granted is now a standard that wasn't for us. Mm -hmm. And the, the notion that an app that can print a house is not a huge leap, right? That's something that we, you know, we giggle about it. It sounds yeah. silly. But to that generation, it's something that they can totally conceive. And the thing is, is everything about what we're doing can be automated eventually. This table that's sitting here, of course, you know, Kirk put in the hours to get it sanded and put nice, but the, the, the leg was 3D printed. And the time it took to program and print the leg... And was, this is local ...was a wood, fraction right? of, the, of the time it took to get this nice. Well, speaking of cameras, walking around out there. And Jim, they can lurk in the windows here. <laughs> Come in. Or no, I don't know. Should they join us and close it out that way? <laughs> sure, they want to. Fuck you guys, join us and close out the podcast. We were just talking about you, Cam. That's hilarious. Oh, really? Awesome. Yeah. Hilarious. We're talking about how much he complains, how much he pisses and moans, oh, about having to climb ladders. Yeah. I'll play <laughs> climbing ladders. I'll give you that one. <laughs> no, we were just basically saying how, you know, the generation that Jim and I grew up in the things you guys take for granted for us wasn't even necessarily something we thought possible. And, you know, Jared is asking if there's ever going to be a print home app on your phone. And, I mean, you can imagine that existing, right? Oh, yeah, of course. Hopefully I'll see it in my lifetime, too. Yeah. I really hope to. I, can I don't think he's on now. camera, the way. I mean, I'll just turn that. I'm going to be the cameraman. I don't know if you guys want my feet so close. <laughs> yeah, of course not. Thank you. Yeah, do they? <laughs> we have 100,000 people on live right now. Really? Oh. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's so that's just, uh, hard work. Right? Yeah. We're not complaining. That's where the stinky feet come from. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I totally picture uh, that if you could just select a house, what would be better than that? Or even order one. You, know? mm -hmm. you go online, you go to Twente, and you uh, say, I want this one until it comes shows up without even a word spoken, and your house is there four days later. What do you guys think of being your boss? <laughs> Oh, I love working for the guy. <laughs> yeah. Never met anyone like Best anyone job here at ever. <laughs> I like working with you guys. It's awesome. You guys let me yeah. film whatever. You don't put any restrictions on me. And uh, it's awesome being here in Canada. You guys should definitely reach out to the 20 crew. And I'm sure they'd love to talk to you if you're a serious 3D printed construction individual. For any 3D printing, any out of manufacturing, it's still cool. It's worth looking into. And I'm sure all of us are here to answer questions for anyone. If somebody wants to reach out, what's the best way for them to, to get you? J-I-M-Z at 20-am.com Instagram too. 20 out of manufacturing Instagram. Answer DMs as well. Mm -hmm. I'm still using smoke signals, so just <laughs> blanket over the fire. Ian's had the same phone number for 25 years now. <laughs> so. Alright, well thank you guys for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you again. Keep seeing you all over the place, eh?